Our passage this morning is going to be found in Exodus 33 and 34. So you can take a Bible out or, if you prefer, turn yours on and find Exodus 33. We're going to read all of Exodus 33. We're going to read the first nine verses of Exodus 34. And I'll just start by reminding you that Exodus 33 comes right after Exodus 32, which is what we talked about last week. And that's convenient. We've skipped around a little bit in Exodus, but I just want to remind you that the story we're looking at this morning comes right on the heels of God's people while Moses is up on the mountain making an idol and bowing down to it and worshiping it and breaking out into immorality and Moses coming down and breaking the commandments that had been written by the finger of God and grinding that idol up and making the people drink it. All of that has just happened and we're going to pick up the story in Exodus 33. Last week I told you that Exodus 32 was my favorite passage, my favorite chapter in the book of Exodus. This morning, I would suggest to you that Exodus 34 is one of the most challenging passages to navigate in the entire book of Exodus. There's some things in Exodus 33 that are just a little bit difficult to wrap your arms all the way around. There's some things that are difficult to put together. If we're, if we're thinking about all that the Bible tells us about God and how he deals with human beings and we put all those pieces together, there's some pieces here that are a little bit tricky to put together. And some of those issues we're going to address this morning and some of those issues we will not be able to address because of time. So as you read this passage this morning, as maybe you think about it during the week, if you have questions about it, I would certainly love to visit with you. Let's try to put a few things in place, and then we'll build up to a big idea. Moses, this is on your outline, had a small, quote-unquote, tent of meeting outside the camp that was different from the tabernacle, which was also, just to make it confusing, referred to as the tent of meeting. And so there's a couple of different ways Bible scholars piece all of these ideas together in these passages that talk about the tent of a meeting. My preferred interpretation here is that God has given Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, but if you're reading through Exodus, they haven't built it yet. And so this big tent of meeting, the tabernacle, is yet to be built, and you can look later in uh, the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the tabernacle sometimes is called the tent of meeting. But you also read about a tent of meeting here, and my suggestion is that this is Moses's, if you want to call it like a personal tent, before they built the tabernacle. The tabernacle was put right in the middle of the camp, but this tent, Moses' tent, was put outside the camp. The text says far away from the people. And it's the place where Moses went to meet with God, to talk with God, to commune with God, before they actually built the larger full-scale tabernacle. And we talked about the tabernacle a few weeks ago, and we're going to talk about it next Sunday as we wrap up the book of Exodus. So there's a, a thought about the tent of meeting. Now let's talk about jewelry. Much of the jewelry plundered from the Egyptians would have had religious connections. We're going to come back to this in a little while. We've talked about this jewelry that they plundered, and I just Googled Egyptian jewelry, and that's what came up. And as you look at that, you maybe get an idea of what it was that the Hebrews took from the Egyptians. Some of it would have been related to their worship of the sun, and so you can see on these two silver earrings here, the eye of Horus, this idea of, of the sun being in the sky and they deified the sun and they worshiped the sun. You can see the, the religious symbol of the Ankh, the cross with the loop on the top and 
Uh, you can see the, the sacred scarab beetle. They had a, a deity that was represented by this beetle. That wasn't just that they thought beetles were great. That was that they thought that was the representation or some sort of manifestation of a deity. You can maybe think of Pharaoh worship. Maybe you can think of images or signs or symbols relating to the realm of the dead. Or maybe it's just as base and as simple as charms and amulets and things that they wore because they thought it would protect them from evil spirits. They thought it would protect them from this god or that goddess. I just want you to get in your brain that when they collected this jewelry on the night of the Passover and walked out with it, much of it would have been religious. And the same would be true today. If we passed the plates and I told you put all your jewelry in it, we would collect it and we would look at it and we'd say, well, there's a lot of crosses in here. We wear jewelry that reflects some of our spiritual beliefs and our ideas, and that was true for the Egyptians. So the Hebrews collect this jewelry and just file this away in your mind. When they walk out of Egypt with it, much of it is related to the gods and the goddesses and the superstitions and the false worship of the Egyptians. So we're going to come back to that idea. Now for a a fun word here. You can use this at lunch and maybe impress somebody. This passage is filled with anthropomorphisms, anthropomorphisms. They help us understand the character of God. And you read that word and you say, I've never used that word in my life. I don't, I don't understand that. Let me tell you the easiest way to understand this. How many of you have ever seen a Disney or a Pixar movie? Okay, raise your hand. These are anthropomorphic movies. They take human speech and human characteristics and humanity, and they place it on something that's not human, animals. And you watch the movie, and you watch, you know, Zootopia or Lion King, or if you're old school, you like Robin Hood, whatever it may be. You watch these anthropomorphic movies, animals behaving as human beings, okay? Here's the definition of an anthropomorphism. It is the attribution of human characteristics or human behavior to a god or an animal. And you get the animal part. You say, okay, I watch movies where fox is really Robin Hood, and I know that foxes don't walk around and shoot bow and arrows, but you get the idea and you play along with the story. Listen to me. In the Bible, Sometimes the biblical authors describe God in his attributes and his characteristics and how he interacts with people. They describe him as if he were a human. You understand he's not a human. He's God. He is not human. But sometimes in their descriptions of God, they talk about God in ways that sounds very human. Why do they do that? Well, the only existence that you and I really can wrap our brain around is human existence. That's what we know. That's what we are. And so the Bible takes some things that we're familiar with and it uses them to describe God. For example, the text is going to talk about God having a back or a face or a hand. You realize if you've read through the whole of the scriptures, for example, in John 4, that Jesus said God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body, He doesn't have parts. And so when the text talks about God's hand or his back or his face, it's not saying he has a part of his body, but it's taking something from our existence to help you understand something about God. The same thing is true when you read that God relents. We talked about that last week. Exodus 32, God said to Moses, this is what I'm going to do, and Moses intercedes for the people, and the text says God 
relented of the disaster that he was going to bring on the people. And you read that and you say, well, that's something that human beings do. But also keep in mind this verse, Numbers 23. I'll just read it to you. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He's not human. When the Bible says God relents or changes his mind, it doesn't mean the same thing that you experience and I experience. It's not like God suddenly got new information and decided there would be a better course of action. It's the biblical authors taking the infinite, almighty, exalted God that you and I would never be able to fully wrap our arms around in describing him in a way that maybe we can make sense of who he is. And maybe we can make sense of what he's like. And in this passage, there are multiple anthropomorphisms. There's things about God and his existence or the way he interacts with people that are human things applied to God. And the challenge for you and the challenge for me is to walk away and not to think, oh, God's just like me. He's not like you. But the biblical authors are doing their job to help you understand what he's like. Here's the big idea. We're building up to this. God's people are distinct Because of the presence of God. Not presence as in gifts that he gives you. But presence in the sense that he is with his people. God's people are distinct because of the presence of God. Israel was not different than all the other nations because of their population. They were not different because of their power. They were not different because of their wealth. They were not different because of their morality or their culture or anything about them. What made them distinct, and we're going to see it clearly in the middle of our our passage this morning, is the fact that God was with them. That's the one thing that set them apart from all the other nations. It wasn't that they were better or more spiritual or more religious or more in tune with the things that they should have been in tune with. The difference was God was with them. So take your Bible. We're going to begin in Exodus 33.1. We'll read all the way through Exodus 33, and then we'll read the first nine verses of Exodus 34. The Word of God says this, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring... I will give it. I will send an angel. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. 
Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his door, his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand... Two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. 
and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, as we think about Moses and we think about his role for the people, we think about your relationship with these people. Help us to see ourselves and who we are. Help us to see you for who you are. Father, help us to make sense of things that are difficult to wrap our minds around and and pieces of this puzzle that are sometimes difficult to put together. We need your help. Father, beyond understanding, we need your help to leave this place and to live as if these things are true, to allow them to change us, the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we speak and the way that we act. Father, our desire is that your word have authority over our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't have to tell you that in life sometimes you experience bad things. Sometimes life doesn't go the way that you would want it to go. Sometimes you and I are caught off guard by different things in our lives. And sometimes we just experience rough things. And one of the rough things, not to minimize anything else, but one of the rough, difficult things we experience as human beings is receiving bad news. Getting bad news. And I thought about it this week. I'm not sure what's worse because I bet you've had both of these experiences. I'm not sure if it's worse for someone just to spill the bad news on you out of nowhere and it's just almost like a sucker punch that takes your breath away and you didn't see it coming and they just hit you with it and you can maybe think back to times in your life where you received news in that way, bad news in that way and you just, even now as I describe it, you can feel the pit in your stomach when somebody just dropped bad news on you. I'm not sure if that's worse or to hear somebody actually say, I have bad news. And then you have those moments where you're just waiting and anxiety and fear and you don't know what's coming and your mind starts racing about what it may be. You know what it's like to receive bad news. And you know that we don't like it. And I just want you to see at the beginning of this passage that the people of Israel got some really bad news. And it wasn't like God said to them, I have some bad news for you. But it's also not not like it came as a complete surprise and a sucker punch out of nowhere. Look with me, if you will, at the text. Look at Exodus 33. Look at verse 1. God begins, and he's referring to the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. And we talked about this last week. The people pop off and they say something about, we don't know what's become of this man Moses, the guy that brought us out of Egypt. And then when God speaks to Moses, he says, hey, Moses, your people, (laughs) the ones you brought up, where we know, well, God brought them up. Moses didn't have anything to do with that. And it's almost like God playing along with this misunderstanding. He says the same thing to Moses here. Your people, Moses. He doesn't call them his people. He doesn't say my people. You brought them up. He doesn't say that he's the one who brought them up. Look at verse 2. God says, I'm going to send an angel. In other places in this story, and even later in the story, God's going to say, I'm going to send my angel. And the idea behind that idea, my angel, is that he's sending the angel of the Lord. 
It's really God himself, the second member of the Trinity, going with the people. And the New Testament confirms that Jesus was with these people. Before he became Jesus in Bethlehem, the second person of the Trinity, God himself was with these people in the form of the angel of the Lord. But here he says to Moses, not that he's going to send my angel, but he says, I'm going to send an angel with you. And then you come to verse 3, and here's where he drops the bad news bomb. He says, I'm not going with you. You're going to go, take your people into the land I said I was going to give to you, and I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, I might just consume you along the way. So I guess it kind of depends on your perspective. You could look at this and say, well, that's really good news. We're not going to be consumed. God's not going to destroy us for our sin. But the people didn't hear it as bad news, and Moses certainly didn't think, excuse me, the people didn't hear it as good news, and Moses certainly didn't think it was good news. This was the worst of all possible news that they could hear, that God was not going with them. And before we move on, I just want you to stop at that point and think for a second. God says to the people, to Moses, who's then going to relay this message, you go to the promised land, the land that's flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised that I would give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, you go to the land, but I'm not going to go with you. And my question for you is, if you had been there, would that have been enough for you to get the land with the milk and the honey and for God to give you the place that he'd promised to get you? Remember, you've been a slave for centuries Your ancestors have been slaves. You've been brought out of slavery into freedom. God's given you this law, and now he says, look, I'm going to just send you in, and you're going to go, but I'm not going to go with you. Would that be enough for you? I think for millions of church-going people in the Bible Belt in the United States of America in 2018, I think for millions of us that would be enough. Can we get all the promises without God could we get heaven and no more death and all the great things and all the reunions we look forward to would that be enough if God was missing from the equation there's a a retired pastor his name's John Piper and he wrote a book called God is the Gospel and this is how he poses the question he says if you could have heaven no sickness all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasure you ever tasted, and no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's the question before the people, because God says, I'm going to send you in, but I'm not going. And Moses, at least, answers the question and says, that's not enough. If you're not going with us, then that's, that's not enough. It's either you with us or nothing. We have got to have you go with us. Which leads me to just ask myself this question. If God knew he would eventually go with the people, and let's just be honest enough to say that he knew he was going to go. He knows everything. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. There's no new information. 
that he's looking for. If God knew he was going to go with the people, why did he begin by telling Moses that he wasn't going to go with them? Why go through the whole thing in the first place? And I'm going to give you two suggestions from the text. Number one, he wanted to move the people to repentance. To repentance. God wanted to move these people to repentance. And you see it in the passage. Look at verse 6. It says, The people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They took them off. Some Bible scholars I read this week looked at their stripping themselves of these ornaments, this Egyptian jewelry, and they said, well, that's just a sign of mourning in the ancient world. If you want a parallel that maybe we can kind of understand, you could go back to the Civil War era, and if a, a, a man died in the war and a woman was left as a widow, there was this expectation that she would wear black, and she would wear a certain amount of black for so many days, and then she could take off her black gloves and veil. And There was a whole process that she went through, and her outward appearance was supposed to be a picture of her inward mourning. And some Bible scholars say, that's all that's going on here. They're taking off their jewelry. It's sort of the sackcloth and ashes thing, and And they're just outwardly displaying that they're grieved. Maybe. Maybe. But I think we add to that the reality that much of that jewelry that they walked out of Egypt with pictured false gods and false goddesses and deities and superstitious things. And there were were charms and amulets. And the text is telling you the people take all of that stuff off. It's almost as if they're saying, we're going to be done with this stuff. We're moving on from this nonsense that we picked up in Egypt. We're not going to wear this stuff anymore. And the text says they took it off from Horeb onward. You also see their repentance in this little aside we're going to talk about in a minute. But where Moses goes to the tent, what are the people doing while Moses goes to this tent? He walks through the camp. He walks out of camp. He's meeting out there. And as he walks out, it says the people stand. We all understand in our culture, 2018, that standing is a sign of respect. They stand out of respect as he walks through the camp. And watch Moses go into the tent, and it says they worship at their tents while he goes in. So part of what God is doing, when he knows he's going to go with them, in saying I'm not going, is he's moving the people to repentance. Secondly, and you can't miss this, he's reminding the people how desperately they need a mediator. He's highlighting the need that the people have for a mediator. If you're reading through this passage, chapter 33, it's a nice story and there's a nice dialogue. But you may have noticed that verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 almost seems like an interruption into the story. Because before it, the first six verses were tracking along. And in verse 12, we pick up with the exact same story. But there's this little aside in verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 that describes Moses going out to this tent. I'm just going to tell you, those verses are there for a reason. It's not like the author, and I believe it would be Moses, said... Oh, I need to throw in a little detail here and and tell people about this little tent I had. Moses decides to tell them about the tent right here because he's reminding us, just like God was reminding the people, you need a mediator. Remember where we came out of in Exodus 32, this sin of the golden calf. You can't just come into my presence as idolaters. There's got to be a mediator that stands in between me and you. And we saw Moses do that. We saw him, we should say, tried to do that in chapter 32 where he says, if you, if you can't forgive them, cut me out of, out of your book. Blot me out of the book. 
So Moses is this mediator, and God's reminding them, you need a mediator. So the mediator goes into the tent, and everyone stands as he walks by, and they worship at their tents while Moses is in the little tent, and the cloud comes down, and Moses is talking with God. And what does he ask of God? Let's just point out the requests that Moses makes of God. Request number one, he wants to know God's ways. He wants to know his ways. And I would suggest to you that what he's really asking here is to know the plan. He wants to know what's going on. I'm the leader. You say that I'm tight with you. I don't even know what's going to happen. And he wants to know the plan. Remember verse 12 and 13 talk about this angel. And Moses asked God, who is going? You haven't even told me who's going. I don't know anything about this angel. I know that you used to be with us. But I don't know about this angel. Who's going with us? Tell me your ways. Let me in on the details here. And notice what God says in verse 14. My presence will go with you. And if you like to make notes in your Bible, in verse 14, where it says, My presence shall go with you, you should draw a circle around the word you and draw a line out to the margin And you need to understand that that you in verse 14 is a singular you. You kind of miss it in the English, right? Because we use the word you for you individually or you as a group. You really can't tell. But in the Hebrew, it's unmistakable. God is saying to Moses in verse 14, I will go with you, not them. I'll go with you, Moses. But I'm not going with these people. And what he's saying is, we'll keep this little tent, we'll keep it outside the camp, this is what we'll do, you, individually, but I'm not going with them. And I think you've got to understand that to make sense of what follows in verse 15. Verse 14, God says, my presence will go with you. And what does Moses say in verse 15? He doesn't say, thank you, that is such a relief. Let's leave. He says, look, if you're not going with me, Do not bring us up from here. And what Moses is saying to God is, look, this is not enough. This is great. I love meeting with you in this tent. It's awesome. But we need you. So if you're not going to really go with us, really all the way be in with us, do not bring us in from here. We're not going to take one step unless you're coming with us. That's the second request. Moses wanted God to be with his people. With the people. He wants to know the plan. He wants God to be with his people. And this takes us to our big idea, verse 16. He says, is it not in your going with us that we're distinct? Just putting it in an English paraphrase, in verse 16, Moses says, look, we got one thing going for us, and it's not the golden calf idol. It's not me, and it's certainly not Aaron, It's not how smart we are or how powerful we are, the Joshua, the great general of our armies. The only thing we have going for us is you. We need you to be with us. I wonder how many Christians in 2018 feel that way. The only thing I have going for me is God's presence in my life. That's all I have. I wonder how many churches in Odessa, Texas feel that way. I wonder if we, of all churches, a church named Emmanuel, God with us, I wonder if we understand that. 
The only thing that we have going for us as a group of people is God's presence in our lives. We don't have anything else. We have a great band. They're not great enough. You got a guy who can get up and give a talk, but they're not good enough. You may love your Sunday school teacher. It's not enough. Your friends may be here. It's not enough. The only thing we have going for us is God's presence with us. I wonder how many of us live in that sense of dependency, saying to God, God, the only thing I have going for me is you and my life. I don't have any good thing to offer, you or anyone else. The only thing that makes us distinct is the presence of God with us. That's what Moses is saying. So he wants to know God's ways. He wants God to be with his people. Number three, he wants to see God's glory. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Now what I'm about to say might upset some of you. Sometimes when I bring up an idea or a thought that doesn't exactly fit with what you've heard in Sunday school for Dozens of years you think, oh, that guy's crazy. And I think most of you have heard sermons and Bible studies about this story where Moses says, show me your glory. And I think the default assumption is Moses wanted to see God. He wanted to see him. I can take you back when I was a senior in high school. Our church took a group of students to Super Summer and we went to Hardin-Simmons and we spent the week on the campus and we did the camp I had a little small group leader who, looking back on it, I think he was a little bit crazy, but he was our small group leader. And one of the things he kept telling us throughout the week is that one time he was reading through Exodus and he decided he was going to pray Moses' prayer. And what that prayer meant is he wanted to see God. So he started praying that prayer and he got to see God. He saw him, really, really saw him. And he spent the whole week. That was about the takeaway for me for that super summer. This guy saw God and if I don't see him, something's wrong with me. Moses says, look at verse 18. Look at what he says. Show me your glory. Sometimes the best way to understand a word or a verse in the Bible is just to think through what's around it. Let me just remind you of a couple of passages. Exodus 16 says the people arrive at Sinai. They see, just quoting you, Exodus 16.10, they saw the glory of the Lord. And it was in this cloud that they saw. They saw the glory of the Lord. Remember, Moses wrote this. The same guy that prayed, show me your glory, he wrote the book. And it says earlier, chapter 16, they saw the glory of the Lord. They had already seen it. You can jot down Exodus 24.16-17. says that when Moses goes up Sinai and There's all this thundering and lightning and smoke and all the stuff that the people look up Sinai. And the text says, Exodus 24, they saw the glory of the Lord. They saw it. So my suggestion to you, and you can think I'm crazy if you want to. I think Moses was smarter than the average Israelite. I think he understood at this point that God cannot be seen. And I think when he says, show me your glory, I don't think that Moses is saying, I want to see you. I think what he's saying is, I need more. I need more of what we've already had. We saw your glory in the cloud. We saw your glory at Sinai. 
you've been with us and you've confirmed that. I need to know that you're still with us. I need you to be with us and I need to see your glory. I think it's Moses not asking for something completely different than what God had given him up to this point. I think it's just Moses desperate saying, we need more of what you've already given us. We need you. And again, I would ask you to just stop and think. How often do you live in that sense of dependency on God, saying, God, I need more of you. I need more. What I experienced at Super Summer in high school is not enough. What I experienced when I got baptized, that's not enough. That great weekend we had at the marriage conference, that's not enough. God, I need more of you. I'm going to suggest to you that if you're at the point in your life where you think you're pretty good spiritually, you and God are in a good place, and you just kind of have it on autopilot, and you think you're just going to coast the rest of the way, you don't think you've got a whole lot more to learn about God or experience with God, you're in a deadly dangerous place. And what Moses is saying, my interpretation, is not, I want something that you've never given me before. But what he's saying to God is, God, I need more. We saw your glory here, and we saw it here, but God, I need to see it again. I need you every single step of the way. I think this request fits with everything else Moses is saying to God and saying, God, you have to go with us. If you're not going to go with us, we don't want to move. We want to stay right here because you're the only thing we have going at all, period. Show me your glory. God, I need more of you. Yesterday's spiritual experience is not going to get me through tomorrow. And if you think that your spiritual experience from yesterday is going to keep you from sinning tomorrow, you're crazy. Moses says, we need more. We need more. And God responds to Moses. And I want you to think about how God responds. Look at verse 19. God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Does God have any badness to pass before Moses? Look, I don't think God is saying to Moses, Moses, you've asked for too much. I'm going to, you're going to have to settle. I think God is saying to Moses, you need more? I'm going to give you more. I don't think he's giving Moses less than what he asked for. I think he's giving Moses more than what he asked for. And I want you to understand something very, very important. What follows in this story has nothing to do with what Moses sees. Nothing. It's all about what he hears. When God shows up, it's not that Moses sees something that's so great. It's that he hears the truth about God. God preaches a sermon to Moses. And what what does he do with Moses' eyes? He takes him in the rock and he shoves his face in a rock and he says, I'm going to cover you up with my hand. Now listen, and I'm going to tell you who I am. This fits with the Old Testament. The idols that you read about in the Old Testament, you can see them with your eyes, but they cannot hear you, and you cannot hear them because they don't speak. The God of the Bible cannot be seen. He's spirit, but he hears you. And he can be heard when he speaks to his people. And what he says to Moses is, you want to see my glory? You don't need to see anything. Put your face in the rock and listen. 
And I want you to just see what he says to Moses. We'll summarize it as best we can for time's sake with five simple ideas. Number one, God is transcendent. Transcendent. That's verse 20 where he says to Moses, you can't see me. You can't. I'm holy. I'm not like you. I know that I interact with you on this level that seems human, but I'm different than than you, Moses. I'm above you. I'm beyond you. He's transcendent. Secondly, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's going along with Moses' plan here, right? Moses is asking for things and God is responding. But then he jumps in in verse 19. And just to make sure that everyone knows Moses wasn't the one calling the shots, God says, let's be clear about one thing. I show mercy to who I want to show mercy to. And I'm gracious to who I want to be gracious to. You don't get to manipulate me. You don't get to back me into some corner where you're the one calling the shots. I'm in control. And I show mercy to who I'll show mercy. And I'm gracious to who I'll be gracious. Number three, he's the lawgiver. The lawgiver. Maybe the best part of the whole story is when God speaks to Moses in verse 1, chapter 34, and he says, oh, by the way, you're going to need two tablets. You remember what happened with the old ones. Moses walked down with them. God had written in them. The finger of God wrote those commands, and Moses shattered them on the ground, not in a fit of rage, but showing the people that they had broken God's covenant with them. They had cut themselves off from God and separated themselves from God. And God is saying to Moses, understand this, when he says you're going to need to bring two tablets with you and we're going to write those commandments down, he's saying the covenant is still on. I'm still with you. I'm still your God, and you're still my people, and my expectations have not changed for you. So he's the lawgiver. Number four, he's gracious. He's gracious. Verse 6 and 7, they get repeated all the way through the Old Testament, dozens of times. He passed before him. Moses has his face in the rock. It's not about what he saw. It's about what he hears, and this is what he hears. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I am gracious and I'm merciful. And number five, he's just. Verse six goes to verse seven. And at the end of seven, he says this. I will by no means clear the guilty. I will by no means clear the guilty. Sometimes we get mixed up in the stuff about the generations and the children and the father. Some of that is Hebrew idiom that doesn't translate well. And I think what God is saying to Moses in those verses and when he says it elsewhere is, every generation that rebels against me can expect the exact same thing. I'm not going to change generation to generation. There's not going to be any let up like I'm tired of executing justice. I'm going to do it as long as I need to do it. And I will by no means clear the guilty. And if you are a thinking person at all, you read verse 7 and you just look up and you say, I don't get it. If this is all you've read in the Bible and you come to verse 7 and it says he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he's gracious and forgiving and merciful but he will by no means 
clear the guilty. You step back and you say, who else needs grace but the guilty? Who else needs forgiveness but those who are guilty? Who else is desperate for the patience and the faithfulness of God to be forgiving and and merciful and gracious except those who have broken his law? How can both of those things be true? How can we hold both of those verses together and not just cut one of them straight out of the Bible? When it says, he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives, but he will by no means clear the guilty. That's the problem all the way through the Old Testament. That's the problem in Exodus 32, right? We talked about last week where they commit this great sin and Moses says, look, if you can't forgive them, blot me out instead. He's already putting the pieces together that maybe a substitute can die. The problem is Moses suggests a flawed substitute. It's going to be the same dilemma when you get into the book of Numbers and they're right on the doorstep of going into the promised land and they send the spies and the spies come back and you remember what the people say? Eh, we'll pass. We don't want to go. And God says this exact same thing to the people. Look, I'm merciful and I'm forgiving and I'm gracious and I'm slow to anger and I abound in steadfast love, but I will by no means clear the guilty. And we look at that and we say, well, how do they, how do they fit together? And if you've read the rest of the story, if you've grown up in church, then maybe you're fortunate enough to know they fit together only at the cross. That's it. If you don't have the cross, you can't make sense of this. You can't make sense of the most basic piece of theology in the Old Testament. What is God like? And the Old Testament authors tell you, he's gracious and forgiving, but he will not clear the guilty. And you wrestle with this and you say, how how does it fit together? If he's not going to clear the guilty, how can he be forgiving? And if he's going to be forgiving, he's going to have to clear the guilty. And you wrestle with it and you wrestle with it until you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus, the one who was without sin, who became sin for us, who was punished for our transgressions so that the guilty could go free and the justice of God would be satisfied and he could be gracious and merciful to sinners like me and sinners like you and sinners like the people. It only makes sense in the cross. How much of that did Moses understand in this moment? I'm not exactly sure. Here's what I know. Verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And the last thought on your outline is this. Worship fueled by faith and repentance is the only proper response to God. Worship, acknowledging God for who he is, praising him for what he's done for us, fueled by faith, Fueled by repentance is the only proper response that we have for God. And that's exactly what Moses does in verse 8. He quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. We're going to do the same this morning. I want you to bow. We're going to pray together.